Hello again, Venters, and thank you for joining me for another edition of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. As always, I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Vent. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they're passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. On to my special guest now, and this is someone who has been an absolute trailblazer for mental health in his profession and amongst his peers. Rugby is a sport often defined by its brutal physicality and aggression. However, it's also a sport that requires skill, panache, flair, and genuine camaraderie between players in order for teams to succeed. However, like many sports, over the years it too has at times fallen prey to toxic masculinity and has failed at times to address the topic of mental health often enough, which makes my special guest attempt to tackle it all the more inspirational. So, I am delighted to be joined by professional rugby union player Kinnan Mile. Kinnan, until recently, was playing for Gallagher Premiership side Wasps. He's also played for Premier- fellow Premiership side Sale Sharks, as well as Championship side Yorkshire Carnegie, previously known as Leeds Carnegie. At the moment, he's just completed a postgraduate diploma in applied neuroscience at King's College London and is about to embark on a PhD at Oxford University in psychiatry. Kiernan, welcome to the Just Checking In pod and thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy life to talk to me. I'm so pleased to have you on and I feel very, very privileged to get the chance to talk to you. First of all, how are you? How's everything going on with you? I'm really good, thank you. Yeah, very good. Um, it's been a lot of a change transitioning mm. out of rugby mm. into uh, my new uh, challenge. Your adventure. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But uh, no, really good. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Um, now, first things first, I did a bit of, obviously, a bit of research for this pod and I happened to find out you are originally a Huddersfield lad yeah. from home first so my my dad is from Murfield Dewsbury I'm a Huddersfield town fan because oh, I, I grew up in East London but he, he brought me up sporting town so a bit of a shared connection there oh, um, so I go up there quite a lot see games so I'm, I'm very much used to the Yorkshire team and you're an active town supporter yeah right? mate yeah yeah so, so well yeah, yeah, yeah it was <laughs> a tough 18 months that. to be honest yeah we won't mention that um so at the moment you've you've been you were out injured for a while, but you're turning that negative into a positive with the PhD you're studying for. So just quickly tell the listeners a bit about that. Yeah, so um, I made uh, I made the tough decision to sort of step away from the professional game at the end of last season. Um, I had a summer to myself, kept myself fit from a rugby perspective because I'm I'm hoping to play in the varsity match against Cambridge in, in oh, December. Big game, oh, yeah, massive game at Twickenham on BBC Live. Mm. Um, Jamie Roberts as Jamie well, Roberts, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah very yeah. recently. There's there's a whole host of ex-professionals who have who have graced the Twickenham field in in either light blue or dark blue. Mm-hmm. So hopefully I'll be able to follow in those footsteps. A little bit tricky at the moment. I injured my back actually playing for Oxford out in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just a, a race against time to try and rehab um, and get fit. Uh, with also whilst learning how to do a PhD at the same time. <laughs> a lot to balance. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Perfect. Well, now we've got that out of the way. Shall we get started? Absolutely. So the first topic I wanted to get into with you, Kieran, is is your rugby career up to now, basically. So just to kick us off, tell the listeners about how you first got into rugby, what made you fall in love with it, Maybe who took you to your first premiership game or maybe your local club as well? So, so as a kid, I just, I loved sport. I loved playing all sport. I, I played football, basketball, cricket, rugby. 
Uh, I think because of my size, rugby was kind of the one that I I felt most at home with, and I was bigger than most most other mm. kids, so I had a natural advantage in that. And also, my dad played rugby growing up, mm. um, and obviously, as a kid, you always look up to your dad and you want to be like him. So he didn't let me play rugby until I was until I was about eight, actually, uh, and then he took me down to my local club, Huddersfield Rugby Union. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from then on in, it was it was pretty plain sailing. I always mm. carried on playing all of the sports, um, but rugby was kind of the one that I always came back to. And then when I was 15, I uh, got offered a contract with Leeds um, as an academy, and kind of that's where my professional journey began. Mm. Never dabbled in league? Because it's almost blasphemous up in yeah. Huddersfield to play union, isn't it? It is. <laughs> it, it genuinely is. And, and Huddersfield is the birthplace of rugby league. So I played both growing up. Played mm-hmm. a little bit for Huddersfield Giants in their academy, mm-hmm. um, sort of 13, 14. And at my school, my school was only rugby league. So mm-hmm. I used to play standoff rugby league, um, which is very different to being a second round. I was going to say, that is almost <laughs> compo- complete polar opposites, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, completely different. Uh, I enjoyed playing league a lot, but I think rugby union was always my game. Mm. And you said that you were at Leeds Carnegie there. So... I believe that you were playing at the same time as Luther Burrell, is that right? Yeah. We were in the same yeah. academy together, so okay. We were in the same academy together. We, I'm actually the year above him, but we, he, we played down at Huddersfield for the same time. So I've known Luther since I was, mm. I was eight years old. And what was basically. he like back then? Is he the same lad he is now? He's quite a down-to-earth fellow, isn't he? He is, yeah. yeah. He's, he's a Huddersfield lad through and through. Um, he was very similar to me. Uh, if I'm honest, he was probably better than me when we were younger because it, like, I remember we went on tour once and we went to this place and the teams we were playing weren't very good. And I think I scored eight tries in the match and was feeling pretty proud of myself. <laughs> and then went and found out that Luther playing the year below had played some, scored something like 16 tries and just like <laughs> absolutely bettered me. Um, but he was always pretty good growing up. Um, during that time, you also won some junior silverware, is that right? Did you win the National Colts Cup trophy? Was that in 2004? Yeah, yeah, that was with Leeds. So that was, we had an under-19 side um, and they put us in uh, the cup against the, the local county sides. I think it was just Yorkshire actually but there's a r- rugby union in Yorkshire is very strong uh, and we were playing against men's teams mm. and we somehow managed to, to win that cup which was pretty good playing against uh, men's teams as yeah. teenagers and what was that what were your sort of memories of that Did it, was it something that gave you that extra bit of belief when you were in the academy that you could go on and compete with these men and maybe perhaps make it as a professional yeah I remember it being just so important like looking back now until you've mentioned it I probably haven't even thought about it since <laughs> I was that old but I remember at the time winning that trophy was kind of it was the equivalent of the World Cup back then a it seminal meant, moment yeah, yeah absolutely it meant so much and you also at that time got your first England age group caps um, I believe was when you went you played for the under 18s in a home tournament in Belfast is that right? yeah that is right I, yeah. I actually didn't get into the under 16s um, team even though I was I was definitely good enough coach what, so without within rugby union there's a bit of a schoolboy thing and it was England under 16 mm. schools so they generally tended to pick players who went to, to the big posh schools oh, the grammar schools and I was this kid from Huddersfield who played a bit of rugby league the Yorkshire a bit, rough, yeah, a bit yeah. rough around the yeah. edges and uh, yeah for whatever reason didn't get selected and then under 18s um, it changes to clubs and schools so it separates so I ended up playing for England uh, clubs mm. and when you made it at that level did you kind of was it almost a bit of a not a fuck you but sort of like well I've made it I've made it to this part you didn't give me a chance and now I'm going to show you sort of thing was that did you ever feel that at the time when you were a kid sort of like that frustration but you channeled it in the right way yeah absolutely it, it was a massive bit of validation for me because mm. I always had self-belief like real internal you have to yeah, yeah real yeah. internal self-belief and then when that when that gets knocked you do start to question it but even when I started to question it I still I still had the belief that I was good enough to play at that level and then when I kind of 
made it and, and played for the under nine, uh, under 18s and then I was training with the under 19s um, when I was two years young it was kind of like yeah okay now that mm. belief is sort of being fulfilled mm. externally as well mm. fast forward two years now and you make your debut um, ironically against what will be your future club mm. uh, Sale Sharks and the power then the patent named the Power Gin Cup um, in a game uh, the old name for the now Anglo-Welsh Cup I think it is yeah. I think it's called the Anglo-Welsh Cup yeah so tell me a bit about that moment and what it meant to you uh, it was it was huge because now now that cup is used a little bit like teams youth players uh, a lot yeah, of the time yeah, academy flooding them yeah, yeah yeah whereas back then it wasn't so the teams that I was playing in were they would probably rest a couple of players if they were their main frontline players if they were injured but it was genuinely a full first team that I was playing against mm. and, and in um, and I, I think I played about seven minutes in that game I came off the bench and I remember it being probably the hardest seven minutes I've ever played wow. in my life just, just getting smoked I, every, I just, every minute I was just running around trying as hard as I possibly could and I remember I tackled um, my first tackle that I ever made in, in, a, in a professional environment mm. was Sebastian Bruno who's been capped I don't know God knows how many times for France mm. big big lad bloke. Big I lad. hit him as hard as I could and blacked out for two <laughs> seconds and then stood up and, and now with concussion protocols you'd be that would never you'd be you'd off be the field yeah. and you'd be taken yeah. off but that, that, they, they didn't even exist back then so it was just like stand up and, and crack on yeah um, but it was an amazing experience and then a few weeks later I, I had my first start and that was sort of where it all started mm. from and, and took off from there and, and tell me about that first start because I think in any sport professional wise that first moment you never ever forget you know you hear footballers talk about the ma- the manager who gave them their debut even if that manager wasn't actually viewed in very positive lights by other people mm. they hold them in such high regard was that the same for you when you when yeah. you made your debut so it was Phil Davies um, a Welsh coach who gave me my debut at Leeds and he um, kind of after Leeds he quit and then moved on and, and has kind of bumbled about and not actually coached that much and but he certainly looked after me as a young player and he saw something in me and he gave me that opportunity. So you're always going to hold people who see, see something in you and they give you the opportunities that you think you deserve in high regard. So I actually absolutely um, think of Phil in that, in that respect. Um, and it was just, I think maybe I was a little bit too naive because I was 18 years old, which was young. We all are naive at that point, yeah, I guess. Of course. <laughs> Um, and I just remember being incredibly excited. Uh, I don't think I was even ner- I must have been nervous at the time, but I don't remember excited nerves, having, yeah, yeah. having a sense of nerves. I just remember just being so excited. And do you remember the entire game or do you just remember coming on or is it a bit of a blur? How do you sort of look back on it? I remember specific bits from the game. Um, I actually played really well as well. Um, or maybe I just have that memory. Um, but I remember, I remember a few lineouts. I remember a few carries that I had, mm. which is strange because there are out of the hundreds of games that I've played, there are games that I just have no recollection mm. of at all. You went on to appear for Leeds, Leeds Carnegie, you named at that time, um, 120 odd times, 127 I think it was, and you scored 12 tries before joining Sale. So looking back on that period of life, what were your sort of favourite memories? You know, was there a favourite try perhaps or... And also, was there any times where you felt like, looking back, you may have struggled then but didn't realise? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. My time at Leeds was generally, like I said, I was, I was young and I really, really enjoyed it. Leeds, for anyone who, who has lived in the city or has visited, it's a very fun place. It's mm. a university town. There are a lot of young people. So I kind of had the best of both worlds in the sense that I was playing rugby and I was earning decent money, but I was still young enough to go out in the student mm. nights yeah, and yeah, enjoy yeah. myself. <laughs> Get away with so, it. <laughs> yeah, in truth being at Leeds probably hindered my career a little bit <laughs> because I was going out I was going out on the Raz twice a week and playing premiership rugby um, and drink harder you train harder yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. exactly um, and I, I overall had a great time at Leeds 
we were always scrapping around the bottom of the mm. Premiership. So I think my, my favourite uh, memory from Leeds was staying up one year when mm. everybody predicted we were going to go down. We didn't have a great team on paper, um, but we pulled together as a team and played some really good rugby and, and beat some teams that we weren't expected to even compete against and we ended up staying up in the Premiership. Mm. Um, I think looking back at that time, I think realistically from a mental health perspective, on the kind of spectrum of, of depression, happiness or mm. normality, I'm probably more naturally on the, the end of, of being a depressed person. Mm. Um, and I think there were probably times when I was younger that I maybe had... had signs or... Yeah, signs yeah, of yeah. depression, but I think because I didn't know what was happening because I was young, it tended to manifest itself in anger. Mm. Or denial or so things was, like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I was very, I was very angry uh, and, and I think people used to think that I was a bit... Um, like a hothead. Yeah, yeah. And, and a bit maybe, not stuck up, but arrogant, just because mm. I was very stuck in my ways and I'd be angry and I'd be very certain of things. Mm. Um, and looking back now, it was probably at, at certain points in my career I was mildly depressed, but I just didn't know it and I mm. didn't know how to process those emotions, so they came out as anger. Mm. Um, in 2013, you, you then made the switch to Wasps, where you played in a team which had the likes of, um, I think Danny Cipriani was playing... Yeah, he, he, he joined yeah. Christian Wade, James Yeah, Dan Haskell, Robson, Charles yeah. Pietau, the king of chat and <laughs> rugby podcast, James Haskell. Yeah. Um, just tell me a bit about your time at Wasps then. Did you see it as the ideal move when you signed it and what did you hope to achieve when you did? Yeah, it was a dream move for me. I just got off um, the England tour um, to Argentina in 2013. I had a couple of decent years at sale. I actually took a pay cut to go to Wasps because I, I really wanted to go there. They were a team that were starting their ascendancy to the top of the Premiership. They had some fantastic players, a huge amount of history. Um, they were in West London at the time and had always wanted to live in West London. Mm. So it really was a perfect move. Um, and coming out the back of that England tour, my, my aims at that point were to, to continue and to carry on um, playing in the England team. But then also to, because I'd been at Leeds where we'd been at the bottom of the Premiership for a loss, I'd been at Sale where it was very hit and miss. We'd be mm. great one week, terrible the other week. I, Much I like Sale now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not much to <laughs> Um, and I wanted to be at a team who were, were genuinely going to be competing for trophies. Mm. And what was the switch in that dressing room culture when you went from Leeds to Wasps? Was it less an underdog sort of culture and more sort of like, yeah, okay, we're happy to be the favourites. We, you know, we're going to have this responsibility and we're going to play. Yeah, the, were set different, with different standards set, if that makes sense. Yeah, they yeah. were. The environment was completely different. So Wasps had gone through a period where they'd won everything and then they actually had a couple of seasons where they were down near the bottom mm, and then they that. started getting better. And I joined them at the point where I think they'd finished sixth or something and they were, they were on their way up. And it was just so much more relaxed than anywhere else had been and mm. so much more... Um, enjoyable and fun and people the, the players all enjoyed each other's company and I'm not mm. saying that they didn't at other places but certainly when I joined Wasps it was um, it was a very happy place and they were playing some really good rugby and it was it was very different to mm. um, Sale and Leeds where I'd been where it was a, there was a lot more um, sort of negativity and pressure mm. at that point and, and from a mental health perspective how did you find the different environments did was was you know, the Wasps group of players that you were with, perhaps more supportive um, if perhaps a player had... I know this is 10, 15 years ago, so mental was nowhere near what it mm. is now. But was there still a more supportive environment there? If players were struggling, was there... Not, I don't want to say better support, but like a different kind of support than perhaps from a player perspective and possibly from a club perspective as well? Yeah, that's, that's not a, an easy question to mm. answer because my time at Wasps, where I was severely depressed... 
I didn't really have any support and there was okay. no support available to me. Um, but then on the it's other different hand, now, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the other hand, I didn't. I wasn't forthcoming with my mm. problems either. So I don't think it would have mattered at that point where I was. But I think the the outcome would have been similar. Mm. You also were taken, as we mentioned previously, on a, on an England tour to South Africa under former um, England head coach Stuart Lancaster. Um, you said in your Guardian interview, which we'll discuss a bit later, that if it wasn't for him, you wouldn't have made it as a professional rugby player. So, firstly, just just tell me what you meant by that, and 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 the impact that Stuart had on you as a player. Mm. So. Stuart was my academy manager from age 15, so he signed me at Leeds. Um, and then he became the first team coach at Leeds, and then he became the England Saxons coach, which when I played England Saxons, and then he became the England coach. So kind of at every stage of my career, he, he was, was there. always there. Yeah. Yeah. And when I was maybe 17 or 18, I, I stopped enjoying rugby. I, I, I didn't want to play anymore. And it was literally a case of I wasn't enjoying training. I wasn't enjoying my day-to-day life. It was great playing for England and being in the, the England age group setup, mm. under 18s, under 19s, but I just, I, I wasn't happy. Mm. And the coaches there started making assumptions that I was mentally weak, that I didn't have what it took, even though I was physically able and, and, and a very talented athlete and talented rugby player, I didn't have what it took upstairs. And he saw, he being Stuart Lancaster, saw something different. Um, and he spent a huge amount of time with me one-on-one, sending me to see um, sports psychologists, uh, doing personality tests. Innovative um, at the time, to be honest. Extend- yeah, and yeah. like, this is, this is literally 17 years ago, mm. um, and nobody was doing this sort of stuff back then. Um, and he did physical tests on me as well, and he kind of, he could see that something wasn't quite mm. making sense with what was going on, and he dug a little bit deeper, and, um, and that amount of time and that he put into me essentially got me to the point where I was robust enough as an individual to to get through the bits that I didn't like and to find a new way of, of framing the experiences of not enjoying being in training camps, for example. Mm. Um, and that that essentially laid the foundation for me being able to go on and have a, a sort of 10, 12 year mm. career in, in professional rugby. And if Stuart was listening to this pod now, which I, I pray he is for the, for the viewing <laughs> things as much as anything else, um, what would you say to him reflecting on that, that period of your life? I'd say thank you. I spoke to him before the article came out, the Guardian article, because I had mentioned him in it. Mm. And we had a long conversation and I didn't necessarily remember, or or I remembered my version of events back then and he remembered his version of events. Mm. And what was quite interesting was that I was very aware that the England age group coaches at the time had had kind of put this label on me as of of being a mentally weak rugby Mm. player because I wasn't enjoying the training camps. And as I mentioned before, I had belief in myself. Mm. I knew I wasn't mentally weak. I knew mm. that I was, was able to get through these training camps and, and I was fine. I just knew that I really didn't enjoy being there. And then I come back to Leeds under Stuart Lancaster's tutelage and he puts me through all these tests and things and blah, blah, blah and gives me all this one-on-one attention. And at the time, as a 17-year-old, mm. I thought he must believe this. He must think I'm mentally weak, which mm. is why he's trying to... Um, make me more robust mm. when in fact it wasn't the case at all as I said it was he could see that something didn't quite add up and wanted to do some further investigation so the conversation that I had very recently with him kind of made me see things a bit more clearly about the time and why things happened the way it, it happened um, so if he is listening <laughs> I would just like to say thank you thank you for taking that time mm. and you know looking back on that that, that time you were in the, the elite performance squad um Am I right in saying that was the only real chance you got it to break into the squad? Um, you know, how do you how do you look back on it? Do you feel like you got a fair crack at the England the England squad and and sort of breaking into that sort of 
second row position. I know there's very there was a lot of competition at the time. Yeah, there there always is, and it's England's one of those England rugby. It's one of those things where if if your face fits, then you're going to get thirty caps. And Minimum. Are, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there are some incredibly good players who have never been capped, and I'm not necessarily saying that I'm one of them. Um, I I never got capped. I went on tour. I never got capped. Did I deserve a few? Probably, yeah. Mm. But realistically, there's a lot more people who who haven't been capped and deserve them more than I do. Mm. Um, and it, it's just one of those cases. Coaches have players that they like, and they're going to pick the players that they think can do the best job, and, and they can't pick everyone. And that's mm. just how it falls. And realistically, looking back, like I said, I spent I spent six years at Leeds, having the time of my life playing Premiership rugby. And, and probably drinking too much. And mm. if I'd, I had an offer when I was 18, 19 to move to Leicester and, and play there, and I didn't want to because, quite frankly, I didn't want to move to Leicester. Mm. But had I gone and done that, they were the team at the time who were winning everything. Um, I might have got the, the, the 30, 40, 50 mm. caps that, that I'm, I'm talking about missing. So there were definitely things that I could have done to put myself in a position mm. to, um, to play for England more often than, than I did. But... Uh, I, I, I certainly don't regret anything. Mm. I know you've probably this is probably going to be an answer that I know the um, the answer to a question that I know the answer to. Sorry, but out of all the coaches you played under, which one do you think had the biggest impact on your on your well being and your mental health? So that is a good question to to, to ask because in terms of my career, definitely Stuart mm. Stuart Lancaster. And I suppose. And do you mean it from a positive perspective or a negative perspective? Well, let's go positive first, okay. and then negative people we won't chuck under the bus. But you know, you can always give examples of how of, of how coaches perhaps didn't give you the best advice as well. But yeah. positive, positive first. Yeah, I, I, it's quite it's quite sad to say. I think from a positive perspective, unfortunately, more due to the time that my career spanned mm. over, like it's just sort of coming to a close now, mm. as mental health and sport becomes a big issue. You've been um, a big part of that as well, I'm no, I should say. <laughs> Thank you for saying. Um, and before that, coaches didn't really care whether you were happy, sad, depressed. They just cared if you could go out and hit people or you go mm. out and score tries or you can go out and break tackles. Um, so unfortunately, none of the coaches that I've had have actually had any sort of positive impact mm. on my mental health. Apart from Stuart. Um, apart from Stuart, but little did I know that that was actually his intention mm. um, at the time. Um, and then, yeah, I'm not going to name names, but there's definitely been some <laughs> coaches who have had a negative impact yeah. on it, shall we say. We discussed, we discussed up there about the injury that you sustained recently, which has sort of put you out of action. We've discussed it a bit on here as well. Um, you know, is, is this something that had a big impact on your mental health or was it just something that, you know, you got used to and like any sort of injury and you get on with it, you train hard and you recover? Because I don't think in professional sport, a lot of fans don't see that side. Mm. I mean, Anthony Watson just went through a really ridiculously good injury recovery, but he put hour, he must have put hours and hours and weeks and weeks of hard work into that recovery period to get to back to the where he level he was. Yeah. You know, just tell me a little bit about perhaps the the injuries or the realities of recovery that the fans don't see. Yeah, so injury for any player is an extremely uh, challenging thing, and it's not the fact that you've hurt yourself and that you're in pain because because rugby players don't care about that. Athletes generally don't care about mm. pain or discomfort or uh, the disruption to your life necessarily. But the 
the toll that that has on your mental health mm. is quite significant. And it's only really now that we're starting to understand it. But if you're if you're a player who's playing every week and you're you're really involved and everybody's interested in you and and then suddenly you get injured and then you're no use to people, what happens is people stop talking to you in mm. your day-to-day life. I so, hear that a lot so, in professional sport. Yeah. yeah. So the coaches, you're no use to them. So then they're not bothered. They don't ask you about what's happening in the games. They don't ask you how you are. They might ask you once a week, or oh, how's it coming on? But mm. the only reason they're asking you that is because they want to know when you're back fit mm. to play. You spend a lot of times with the physios who are fantastic from both um, a rehab play perspective, physical rehab, but then also they, they are a shoulder to cry on, so mm. to speak, a lot of the time. Um, but you have this sort of mini loss of identity, mini loss of self-worth mm. and purpose. Like you have your own purpose of getting back fit as quickly as you can. And if you can channel your energy in that way, then that definitely helps getting through it. Um, but for example, mine, mine, mine my re- most recent injury, slipped a disc in my lower back and I'm, I'm not in a professional contract at the moment. So I'm not I don't have any medical cover other than luckily private medical insurance, which has meant that I've been able to get, have scans and, mm. and get injections quite quickly. Um, but for me, it was suddenly a case of, right, I might never play rugby again, mm. which was something that's extremely hard to, to deal with. And I didn't notice until recently when I was having a conversation with my girlfriend that the amount of pain and discomfort that I'm in depends on my mood. Mm. But interestingly, it's not the pain that is the problem it's the pain reminding me that I might not play rugby again I might not be able to be an athlete again I might not play in the varsity match this year mm. and then that's what affects my mood and then that's what affects me being not very pleasant to mm. my girlfriend whereas when I'm feeling good and the pain's not there and I can move freely I, I, I feel much more like myself I feel mm. much more like an athlete which is who I've been my entire life and mm. that kind of um, personal identity isn't questioned internally as much mm. And and from a player perspective, when you're injured, I obviously know that it's gonna it's very isolating, especially when you have a long term injury. Does it depend on the club you're at? Whether you know players will text you a lot or keep you involved or you know do things with you that that maybe if they weren't as good a teammates, they might just say, "Oh, he's injured. We'll we'll let him be on his own, and we'll, he'll just come back in when he comes back in." Yeah, definitely. I've been at I've been at teams where I mean, again, I won't name any names, where they made the injured players train at different times they weren't allowed in the building when the main squad were in so they'd have to come in at 6am and do their work until 8 and then they'd leave between 8 and 3 and then they'd come back in at the end of the day because the coach at the time thought that uh, the, the injured players were a bad influence on the rest of the team so but in, like, in what sense would they be like what's in what sense would they be a bad influence I think it was a tactic to encourage players not to be injured which is just one of the most backward things I've ever heard because mm. players don't want to be injured no. players want to it's be not played. a choice yeah, is it exactly yeah. like you're injured because you're physically impaired mm. doing the job that you've been told to do mm. um, but these are the crazy things that do happen in sport people mm. are uh, people in charge are given huge amounts of power over other people's lives and they're not necessarily qualified to do so it's just they were a good rugby player at one point in time mm. and now suddenly they're a director of rugby in charge of millions of pounds of funding and and, and like dozens of people's lives. Mm. Um, and they don't really have them, not, some are very good, some are medium, some are very, very poor, but, mm. but the ones who are very, very poor just don't have the managerial skills or the personal skills to actually deal with people appropriately. Mm. Um, but then on the other hand, um, you have teams who look after the injured players extremely well and are um, aware of the, the sort of toll on a mental health that it can take and they'll, they'll have um, they'll put injured players in groups together and they'll make it a lot more inclusive so that you're, mm. not, um, you're not so isolated mm. when you are injured. Um, just one final thing on this topic before we move on. You know, 
we've we've spoken really well about that about the the idea of injury and how it affects players and, and mental health. If there was one thing that you wanted to change, I know there's probably a lot of things you mm. want to change, but there was one thing that you wanted to change from a professional perspective in rugby clubs about how they treated and dealt with mental health both for injured players and when they're fit and firing but their mental health isn't okay, what would it be? Yeah, so my, my main point in professional sport is that uh, the provision for your physical health is top-notch because it has to be for a club to get players to go out and perform. Mm. What is seriously lacking for injured and fit players is the provision for their, their mental health and their mental well-being, both when they're playing the best rugby they've ever played, the worst rugby they've ever played, or they're, they're injured. Um, and I think it's just a natural progression in professional sport, not just rugby, that um, they, they need to start optimising players' individual um, psychology from both a, a personal perspective and a performance perspective in the same manner that they do their physical optimization. So the next topic I wanted to discuss with you, Kieran, is, and it's one that you've been instrumental in driving awareness and attention to, is how mental health is tackled in rugby union. Um, so let's, let's start with, with that Guardian interview that you did with Robert Kitson, first of all. Um, why did you decide to do it? And, you know, when you made the comments that you made, were you hoping to enact some sort of change within the profession or was it something you just simply wanted to vent? Or a bit of both? In truth, it was never my intention to, to come out and talk openly about it. Mm. I, I applied for my PhD at Oxford in psychiatry. I knew very much that I wanted to, to, to make some changes about how mental health is approached within sport, particularly rugby. And in an exit interview with Wasps, with a local journalist, I mentioned that I had been depressed myself, mm -hmm. and it was literally just one line. And it was, the rest of it was a 20-minute interview about my time at Wasps, and, and naturally that got picked up on because mm -hmm. it's very much in the media at the moment, and there was a kind of semi-reasonable reaction from that. And then off the back of that, I thought, well, I've mentioned it now, but I've I've literally all I've said is I was depressed at one point and mm. that got quite a big reaction. And then I thought that's... So it's a little, little yeah. thing that comes out and then everything, and like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly like, the same That's one percent of the story. Um, and I felt as though I had a bit more to tell and I wanted to do it in the right manner. Um, and I, I spoke with, with Rob Kitson from The Guardian mm -hmm. um, and we went and met. And then even when we met, I in truth didn't have the intention of saying all of the things mm. that I said. Um, but then when I sat there, he obviously, we had a good conversation and he... he did his job did as a journalist job, yeah. and, and made me feel comfortable. Mm. Um, and then I ended up saying, saying much more than I'd planned to. But I think that, that was the, those were the things that, that had the effect mm. um, that made people stand up and listen. Mm. In, in that article, you, you talked about how you came close to, or as close as possible to taking your own life whilst on a mid-season tour with Wasps. Um, if you could, for, for the listeners who haven't read the interview, just, just talk me through what happened and the events leading up to that moment. So I, I became very depressed. Um, I didn't necessarily know I was depressed at the mm. time. And um, I was actually, I, I wasn't on tour with Wasps. It was a mid-season break. So I was on mm. tour with some Wasps players um, in Dubai. And over, over a period of a few weeks, I'd kind of managed to convince myself that I was a really bad person. So I was having these depressed thoughts, um, very very much centred around my lack of self-worth, mm. that I was a bad person, mm, that rational, people around me yeah, didn't like yeah. them. 
But the problem was because I didn't really understand what depression was and I didn't know I was depressed that I started believing these thoughts. Mm. So the thoughts that I was having became fact and became reality. So my friends and my family around me, people who did care about me and who did like me, I managed to convince myself that they didn't like me and that I was a burden on them, mm. that the only thing that I could do to solve this problem would be to, to kill myself. Mm. And probably the only reason that I'm still here is because deep down I, I didn't actually want to kill myself. I just thought that that was the only solution to the situation. Mm. Um, so what happened on that occasion was I, was I was in Dubai, we'd gone out, had a night out, and what was, what was quite strange about it is I'd actually had a really enjoyable holiday. I'd had a mm. good week, I was feeling good. Um, and I, I was quite drunk and we got home and I, I walked out on the balcony and it wasn't like I thought to myself, right, today's the day I'm going to kill mm. myself You now. didn't plan it out, it wasn't like all, that, no. no. But I just, start, I just climbed over the balcony and I was, I was on the other side of the balcony of sort of a, a building that was 15 floors up and mm. I'm terrified of heights mm. as well. That's so am I, a little that's bit, That's the yeah. strange thing. I, I would under no circumstances ever do that just for like a thrill or whatever. Mm. And I don't know if I was doing it to sort of test myself to see whether I was capable of actually going through with it or what. I don't know whether I would have done it. Mm. Um, but what happened is one of one of my teammates at the time saw what was happening, came out, grabbed me, pulled me back over, and and, and sort of luckily that was mm. not no harm came of it. Mm. Your your story is so similar to mine in so many ways, and I'm sure many others in that when you are in that suicidal state you feel like you are a burden because people are having to look after you and you I always described it as looking back I didn't want to die but I simply couldn't live anymore mm. and the only way that I could end my pain was by taking my own life and the only way I could end my pain and people's you know my burdening of others yeah. was to end was was to end my own life um, you also said something that many many people um, who have had experienced suicidal thoughts and tendencies where you said it got to the point where I convinced myself I was worthless that I was a burden on everybody around me the only way I felt I could take solve the problem was to take myself out of the picture and that's something we, we've just discussed there just for anyone who doesn't maybe un quite understand what that means you know just maybe expand on that a little bit more I think so people if you've never had these sorts of feelings, um, it's very easy to, to, to sort of have the thought process that I hear many people saying about suicide, that it's selfish or mm. that it's the, an easy way out. Mm. And I don't think it is at all. And it's a case of believing something that isn't true. And like I said, I believed that the only way that I could stop the suffering of myself and the mm. people around me and the burden that I was putting on them and um, the unpleasantness that I was, I was causing all these other people mm. was to just take myself out of the picture. Mm. And you're obviously not thinking clearly when you're in that frame of mind, you're not thinking rationally, you're not able to see your thoughts and feelings as just thoughts and feelings and being like, you know what, mm. I feel this way, but that actually isn't the truth. Because you don't have the tools to do it. Exactly. Yeah. So these like extremely dysfunctional thoughts that, that it sounds like we, we've both had in the past, they end up becoming your reality. Mm. And then your reality becomes this distorted world where taking your own life seems like the best course of action. Mm. You, you mentioned there that your teammate, um, Charlie Davies, was the, mm. one, was the one to find you and drag you back over the balcony edge. Now, again, we don't know if he's listening to this, but... If you had a message to say to him, what would it be? Yeah, I thought, 
I, yeah, I just said thank you. He mm. he pulled me back over, and I, I remember he like pulled me in into the room, mm. and then like had me on the sofa, and he was like still holding on to me. He wouldn't mm. he wouldn't let go of me, and mm. and he was just like, "What are you doing? What are you doing?" Mm. And I I just started crying, and I was like, "I don't know, I don't know." Mm. Um, and I think it obviously scared him, and must have mm. had some sort of an effect on him. Um, but yeah, yeah, okay. thank you. Just so thank you, Charlie, if, we're listen- <laughs> if you're listening. Um, you opened up about your depression in this interview as well and, and how it led you to do um, you know, some reckless actions, um, which is also something you're not alone in experiencing. I, I went through that a lot when I was in university and my mental health issues came to a head. Um, however, remarkably, whilst this was all going on, you were probably playing the best rugby of your career. Mm. Um, was this your way of, do you think, of putting a mask on, do you think, to, to hide those, those feelings you were going through? Because, let's face it, you did it pretty remarkably well. <laughs> I think, yeah, possibly. I... I definitely made a, a, a considered effort to put a brave face on when mm. I went into training. Um, and looking back now and speaking to people, probably didn't do a great job because they, they knew that something was wrong. They just obviously didn't know the extent of the problems, my teammates and my coaches. Um, I think in terms of my performance and, and playing well at that period of time, it was just a case of that I had, I had no nerves, I had no regrets. It didn't matter to me whether I played well or played badly. Mm. And for some people, particularly me, that's not a bad thing because when you go into a, a game or you go into a sporting competition and you're tense and you're nervous, mm. you, you're probably not going to play the best you can play. But because I had essentially had nothing to lose, I didn't care whether I missed the tackle, I didn't care whether I dropped the ball, I ended up being relaxed and, and playing a lot more um, physically than I probably would have mm. um, because I, I didn't really... I didn't really care if I got hurt or if I got knocked mm. out. And just for the 80 minutes that I was on the field, I wasn't thinking about the problems that I had. I was just playing rugby. Mm. Uh, and it was, it was arguably a relief for me. The mm. problem was that I was in such a bad place off the field that mm. it, it just wasn't sustainable. Mm. I couldn't have carried on the way I was going. So in a weird way, would it be fair to say that the, the rugby pitch, although it's a pretty brutal place, almost became a safe haven for you for those 80 minutes? It was an escape for 80 yeah. minutes, yeah. yeah. The problem was it's only 80 minutes and a week <laughs> is seven days long. Yeah, so. yeah. You, you talked about the stigma that you faced in, in, in being ashamed or afraid of, of talking about what you were going through in the article where you said, you don't want other people to know you're struggling. It comes across as weakness. Was that innate, innately programmed into me? I just thought if I mentioned the problems I was having, I wasn't going to get pipped. Then I wouldn't get another contract and it would all get worse. Was this fear something that was rooted in other examples where you'd perhaps seen players be open and vulnerable and they'd be punished for it? Or do you think it was, like you said, sort of innately programmed into you to fear? Probably a bit of both. And I don't want to talk about other people's personal circumstances, mm, of but course. There, was, there was a player at Wasps just before that time who had some struggles and he didn't get dealt with very well um, and that definitely was something in my mind that thought okay I don't want this to happen to me mm. I think also as I mentioned before I was branded as mentally weak as mm. a younger player and I was I was terrified that my teammates my peers the people whose trust and, and um, sort of not admiration but um, sort of as a teammate you need to believe in each other mm. and I wanted them to believe that I was a good strong player and somebody that they trusted on the field and I thought if they knew the thoughts that I was having then that trust would be shattered mm. and I'm, I'm pleased to say that the the environment is very different now five six years on but then having said that I still think you'll find very few professional sports people who are willing to 
put their hand up and say, you know what, I'm struggling with severe anxiety or I'm really depressed at the moment. Because sport is so competitive that, that yeah, mm. someone is going to take... If you, if you need a week off, then somebody's going to take your sport while yeah. you're away. Um, and that's why there needs to be um, some method of developing a way to, to help people cope without um, it hindering their careers. Mm. You, you talked about the fear of, of, of opening up and the fear of being sort of punished or... Or, or having punishment put upon you um, for opening up. And you actually said that this was almost a fear that was confirmed a couple of times. Mm. Um, there's a passage where, you know, you, you admitted to a staff member um, you were sleeping poorly and you were told to basically, I don't want to put this in a very... I would quote it because it's quite crude. You were basically told to make sure you jerk off before you go to sleep. Mm. Um, you know, you, you said that no one seemed to notice when you started to... Um, fudge your daily well-being tests and this was something that, that James Haskell on, on the House of Rugby talks sort of like comically about but there, there actually is a quite serious element to it mm. as well um, and you said you know I was thinking if I'm too honest they're not going to play me they're going to see how much of a hole I'm in I was adding 30 to 40% to my answers I mean how did you react first of all to being told that by an actual staff member because that's something I might get trolled by on Twitter like yeah. if I put a tweet out about saying that I'm struggling or whatever someone some troll might say you know you're a snowflake grow the fuck up like if I was told that by someone at my workplace I just I don't know how I would react to it I mean how did you react to it at the time were you sort of in a bit of shock that he could that that person could say that or I wasn't at all no because really? that's just that's yeah. just what it's like in a in a in a hyper masculine environment like a rugby club mm. um, and you know what it's not I don't think it is that it's not somebody he wasn't saying it in the sense of like you know what you need to toughen up man up mm. it's just at that point in time I think with blokes they just you're not able to have a conversation or we weren't able to have an honest conversation about mm. our feelings so it's almost like a protection way of like saying oh just make sure you do mm. this this like mm. super laddie thing mm. to, to just cover up and kind of keep a, a wall between us so we neither of us show any vulnerability mm. and he doesn't have to listen to the conversation of me breaking down and, and saying that I'm, mm. I'm absolutely screwed um, and that's what that's when I say the environment is slightly different now I still stick by my thoughts that I don't think many professional athletes are going to are going to stick their hand up and say yeah I'm, I'm really struggling with depression I need some help but I think those sorts of things in terms of if somebody volunteers information that they are struggling mm. I think the barriers between those conversations um, are starting to reduce, so we might start having more open conversations about um, about our mental health, about reasons why we're struggling, and people not just clamming up and not being able to speak about it. You said something quite revealing into it in your interview as well, about um, other England players you know, but you didn't name any names. You said, quote, there are several England players I know who dread going into camp. They don't want to go there. It's nothing to do with being worried about the physical aspects of training or the media. It's a combination of pressure, scrutiny, what's going to be said, and what they're going to be made to do within the confines of the camp. What are the, what are the longevity of those sort of tactics? Just tell me a bit more about what you meant by that and, and how you see itself, you see it and those qualities manifesting itself in players, not just in England, but across the sport as well. Yeah. Uh, as, I, as I alluded to before, a professional sport is extremely competitive. Mm. Um, and if you show any sign of weakness, any sign of um, inability, you'll just get eaten up and you'll just have somebody, like somebody is behind you all the time. Mm. And if they're not behind you, they're in front of you and you're behind them all mm. the time. Um, 
And when you're in a camp, particularly, there's no break from it. So when you're, you might be struggling at, at, at your club, but you can go home to your wife, to your friends, to your mm. kids, to your dog, whatever it is. <laughs> and like, you have a bit of a break. In a camp, you don't have any break. You're, you're being monitored constantly. Mm. Um, and I think for, for a lot of the England players, they, it, it, it kind of, they're doing it because number one, they get paid extremely well for mm -hmm. playing for England. Um, and number two, representing their country is is a massive thing that, that just anybody would chop their arm off mm. to do. And they're very aware of that. And I actually think a lot of them have the guilt because they, they hate it. They, they do genuinely dislike going into these camps. Mm. And I'm not saying they dislike playing for England. I'm sure most of them have absolutely loved playing um, in the World Cup. Um, but that's very different to the training camps where you're pitted up against each other mm. um, where they're trying to kind of sep separate the, the weak and the tough so mm. to speak and interestingly I was actually quite nervous about that that bit of the article coming out because um, it was then, discussed a bit it was discussed quite a lot in, in, in sort of rugby podcasts mm. and rugby media and sort of I think there was a bit of a sh almost like a shock mm. when you said it as well and I, I again not naming names but people several people within England camp either very recently in it or currently in it messaged me and kind of were like well done for saying it nobody nobody dares say it mm. so I'm I was nervous about it coming out and I thought I don't want to ruffle feathers and especially in the build up to the World Cup exactly. I don't want to be, you don't want to be seen as a distraction or yeah, I don't want to be seen as yeah. a person like chucking phones yeah. at the England thing like, I was cheering them for hell at the weekend mm. I, I really desperately let's not mention it too much wanted, yeah. yeah I desperately wanted them to win yeah. and even though they didn't like the performance against New Zealand their general campaign was amazing I'm, I'm the biggest supporter I can be um, but everything that I was saying was coming from a good place. Mm. And also rugby union journalists in England historically have not got the best reputation for taking comments like that and portraying them accurately or not using them to beat the England rugby union team with. Um, do you feel like your interview and, and, and subsequent interviews about your mental health is starting to change the conversation about, about mental health? Um, you know, the Rugby Players Association and other clubs are making some noises about offering more support and, and stuff like that. You know, do you welcome this or... Are you perhaps sceptical? You know, what, is, what are your opinions on that now? It's a mixture of both. Mm. I've seen a few things, campaigns, adverts, and it's, it's, it's an element of CSR, like corporate social responsibility. People are thinking, oh, we need to do something right. Let's, let's make a video. It's saying, a trend. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they're jumping off the back of that. Mm. And it's not. It's people's lives. It's people's thoughts. And it's what's going on in their mm. head. Um, and it's more important than just putting out a fancy video or, or doing this sort of campaign or that sort of campaign. Um, so there is definitely an element of that where it's people just jumping on a bandwagon because they feel as though they have to. But then also there are some deep-rooted changes happening as well. Um, and I would say it's, it's definitely more positive than it is negative. Mm. Do, you, do you think in the past that the stigma around mental health has been exacerbated or even... God forbid, created by by certain drug, rugby dress, dressing room cultures, um, or do you think that's a bit unfair? Because I I know from mates who from a grassroots level, their local clubs are like absolutely amazing. They're with a group of men. They it seems for some reason I don't know why, but for some I th I sometimes think that rugby dressing rooms from the outside seem more supportive than perhaps football dressing rooms. Mm. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because I feel like at the grassroots level, it's maybe more collegiate or there's less brutality there's brutality on the pitch mm. not brutality off the pitch yeah. what what are your sort of opinions on that well I think yeah, like talking about the, the brutality of it like rugby changing rooms are brutal like you, okay you so slip, they're just as brutal oh, as yeah, football then you, yeah. you slip up you get hammered you get you get mm. the, the piss taken out of you but 
it's done in a way by people are only going to take the piss out of you if you're one of them and they're going to they're going to bring you in and they're going to mm. keep you close and they're they're doing it for the right reasons and and it is hyper masculine and it is kind of all the typical rugby things even at the professional level but that's essentially one of the things that bonds you and brings mm. you together um that being said, there's obviously a, a level when it comes to like laddie banter that mm. if it becomes bullying, then you can definitely cross a line and it becomes mm. bullying. And for the most part, in the however long, over a decade that I've played rugby, I haven't seen huge, there are, I have seen um, uh, evidence of it and I have seen examples of people essentially bullying others. Mm. But the vast majority, like 99.9% of the, the daytime banter laddie stuff is stuff that is probably actually beneficial for your mental mm. health. It's, mm. It makes you laugh, it makes you smile, it makes you closer mm. um, as a team. Um, and I think that's a, a big important thing. And that's one of the factors why sport is so good for you, that you obviously have physiological benefits of doing sport from a physical health mm. um, and also mental health. But mm. then there's also evidence to su suggest that playing team sport is actually better for your mental health than doing individual sport mm. because of that social connectedness. Mm. With, with Rugby Union, what do you think it has to do as a sport to take that next step on their own journey to improving the mental health for players? There's a huge amount of work being done about raising awareness of mental we all, health. We always welcome that. Yeah, sometimes action course. needs to happen yeah, as well. Absolutely. I think we're fairly aware of it now, generally. Um, and now, as you say, action needs to happen, change needs to happen. Our understanding of mental health needs to improve. And just as just as we treat our physical health, like if we're, if we're ill, we go see a doctor. If you're not feeling good and you're having, having issues within your head, don't just stay silent and, and, and struggle with it yourself and expect it to go away. Just like you wouldn't if you were ill in bed for days. You'd go and see a doctor or you'd at least tell your mates, oh, I'm really ill, can you help me out? Mm -hmm. So these are things that need to become more commonplace. Um, I think in terms of rugby union, I, I, I speak with the RPA regularly and they actually have, have funded my PhD, which is fantastic. And they're putting things in place to um, create more support from, uh, from psychologists, not just sports psychologists, but clinical psychologists, putting, putting them in place in rugby clubs to deal with uh, external factors not to do with sporting performance. Mm. And just one final point, because... You're now seen, whether we both like it or not, sometimes we are seen as mental health advocates because mm. we have told our stories. Now, advocate was a word that took me quite a long time to get used to. Um, when I started Vent, I always wanted the folks to be on others. They're, they're, they're the authors that write for Vent, their stories. But, also, but obviously, I like to come out about my own mental health issues at the start of Vent to sort of kick it off. Um, how do you sort of react to when people call you an advocate um, and also, I, I think a really good question is, have any players come to you for advice, support, or told their own stories to you privately after that interview was published? Yeah, a, a huge amount of people have come to me from every walk of life, from people who've never played sport before, they're not interested in sport, but they read the article, mm. um, people, teammates who have had some of them worse stories than me that I had no, about, no idea about and I actually sat and cried reading one of my friends mm. an ex-teammate sending me and just we were just talking we were just mm. having a conversation and he, and he told me what he'd been through and I had no idea mm. and I sat there and cried um, and then people from other sports as well so the reaction to it has been huge and, and again like I was talking about before I wasn't sure whether I wanted to speak about it openly I'm glad that I did and I'm even more glad knowing how many other people have been affected by this and just haven't spoken up about it. 
um, and how many people probably who are playing rugby, playing other sports, um, and just people in general life who are having these, these, these issues and they don't know what to do and they need help and they need advice. We talked about, about it at the top of the pod and we just mentioned it just now um, about your PhD, Kinnan, but I just wanted to go into it a bit more detail um, and the motivations behind it. Now, we both know there is not enough academic research out there on mental health. Was this something that you were aware of before you took it on and wanted to rectify or was it motivated more by your own personal experiences and your desire to help people? A little bit of both. I wanted to, to finish rugby and go into something that was going to be um, intrinsically rewarding in the sense that I was adding some value back to, mm. to the world and society and not just trying to make a, a load of money for myself. Um, and then also I knew through studying my master's that there wasn't a huge amount of research into to mental health generally, but specifically mental health within uh, elite athletes. And I'm kind of finding that to my detriment now because I'm just <laughs> starting my first paper where I have to review the literature and there's actually like very, very little available to mm. review in my specific area, uh, which is a challenge in itself. But then it is also um, kind of indicating that a lot more research mm. needs to be done in this mm. area, which is kind of good for, for what I'm going into. And also you'll probably be the person that people will look two when they do their own degrees because you'll put out the work and they'll be like oh who else has done stuff on this oh it's just Keenan Mile cool that's cool. I'll just use his work <laughs> well that's quite interesting because I've gone into um, I've gone into the department of psychiatry at Oxford that have all these like insanely clever mm. people and these these professors professors who have published for decades and and other PhD students who are two three four years down there their um, research and they were probably far cleverer than I am but then I'm the one that gets asked to speak and I'm oh, really? asked okay. to do events and I almost, I, I almost feel a bit of a fraud but I suppose it's the experiences that I've had in, in professional sport in coming out and being open about it and that's what people are interested in hearing. Mm. And talking about the research itself now, so, so how long is the course uh, and what different subject areas within mental health are you tackling over its duration? Yeah, so the, the PhD will last probably four years. It can go on longer depending on how the research goes. And what, what well, the first thing that I'm looking at, and this is where there is literally no, like barely any research done, is how depression affects athletic performance. Mm. Um, we know the symptoms of depression uh, and we know things that can improve athletic performance or uh, decrease athletic performance, but there's basically nothing that... that puts the two together mm. so I'm hoping to do a review on that but I, I need to find a bit more evidence <laughs> yeah first. of course um, and then the main part of my research is is going to be what you call a randomized control trial where I I'm going to put half of um, a group of young elite athletes through a mindfulness based um, cognitive therapy program but from a perspective of improving their sports performance mm. as well as increasing their, abil uh, their ability to to deal with the, the trials and tribulations of a career in professional sport and the idea is doing it at an age where they're 16, 17, 18 before they embark on their career so they have those tools ready um, for for when things don't go wrong because if you have a career in professional sport that lasts 10 years unfortunately over the course of 10 years some bad things are going to mm. happen you're either going to get injured um, you a might bad break. coach yeah a bad yeah. coach who's not picking you even though you should be picked you might not get your contract renewed and you have to suddenly move to an area you don't want to live because they're the only team that will have you or you have to drop down a division mm. for a season um, on things in your personal life you might break up with somebody you might get Grief, ill somebody might get ill, Ill. Yeah, exactly yeah. all these things that can happen that, that derail you um, and it's just it's just giving 
giving young elite athletes the cognitive skills in the same manner that they learn about nutrition, hydration, and physiotherapy protocols, rehab, rest and, um, rest and recovery, all the things that you learn about as a professional athlete, as a young professional athlete, to, to, enable, you, yeah, yeah. to enable you to perform at a high level, um, it's just sort of adding on a, an emotional intelligence, cognitive skills mm. element to that. And you're only sort of, uh, you're early on basically mm. in, in this journey, but, but how do you see this PhD growing you as a person? You know, are there learnings that you've taken already? Um, and how do you think you'll use them in your life after you finish it as well? Yeah, it's a good question. I've been, I've been doing it for three or four weeks. And, and what I didn't realise is when you do a PhD, at least the one I'm doing is you get put in your desk and then you kind of left your own devices and mm. you have to drive it all completely yourself. There's, you don't attend lectures, you don't attend seminars. Um, it is 100% research driven by you and you are the expert in that area mm. or at least you're supposed to be. So I'm learning a lot of skills on a daily basis uh, and then I think the, the overall view is to come out with, um, in four years' time, a huge amount of, of knowledge specifically about affective disorders, anxiety, depression um, in the, the subpopulation of elite athletes mm. and then hopefully going into organisations, going into whether it's a governing body like the RFU or whether it's a specific team mm. and saying, this is what I've learned, this is what you can do to make your players more resilient individuals personally and also these things will improve their performance as well and how they support each other as well absolutely so, you know spotting telltale signs being able to support a teammate through a bad period can end up making them perform g better than they ever have after it because they've had that support at the time absolutely um the final thing i wanted to just quickly touch on with, that you mentioned is the, the sort of change from kind of doing everything or having everything done for you in a, as a rugby player as an, and, and as an academy player to having to do everything yourself as a PhD. Was that a massive shock to you or...? It still is a massive <laughs> shock <laughs> yeah, to yeah. me, yeah. I've, I've spent however many years, 15 years playing professional rugby and I thought my life was tough. And it, mm. it is. There are unique challenges as an athlete that nobody can, can imagine unless you're an athlete. Mm. But in terms of the amount of time you have spare, it's mm. just that, that, that pressure is just... Like the the real world is a completely <laughs> yeah. different place. Like my days at the moment are like six a.m. till eleven p.m. I'm just constantly working, doing things, um, and that's you. You don't do that as a rugby player. Everything's scheduled in for you, and you are literally if you're like going to training and then you're going out and you're busy for the rest of the day. You shouldn't be doing that. You should be at home resting and mm. relaxing because you need to turn up training fresh. So your life as a as a professional athlete, um, whilst extremely demanding physically and mentally at times. Um, is on the whole probably a bit less stressful than mm. normal life. And do you see that particular um, discussion point, do you see yourself teaching players about that as they retire as well? Because, you know, you are able to deal with it quite well. Um, there's obviously challenges that we all have to go through, but you're able to sort of successfully transition. But some players, and this is a very much true in football and other sports, where that routine is gone they haven't been able to develop the other skills whilst they were playing or ventures or business or whatever it is and they're suddenly left with what do I do all, these, all this spare time of the day nothing's being programmed for me and they really struggle you know players have gone through um, addiction issues they've gone through divorces you know do you see yourself being able to teach players about that as part of your PhD when you finish it or during it? I hope so that's absolutely going to be part of it and you do you have old players even when I was a young player you have old players coming in and saying, you need to prepare, you need to do this, you need to do that. And luckily I did prepare really well. And my transition 
out of professional rugby has been about as smooth as it could mm. be and there's still been huge challenges within that. Mm. So if you're a player who unfortunately gets injured or is expecting to get a new contract and doesn't and then suddenly you're on your own and you need to go and get a job and you're not a rugby player anymore, the effects that that can have on your mental health are like far worse than just transitioning out on your own terms. Mm. And because like I said, even if you do transition out in the perfect scenario, it's still going to be extremely challenging. Um, so uh, there is support there. There is a lot more support for, for athletes coming out of, of, of the game into the real world, mm. so to speak, mm. than, the, than there is for other things maybe. But I think there's definitely um, a way of maybe articulating it better. Um, and, and for me, all the studying that I did and all the, the extra sort of curricular activities that I did were driven by fear. So I was almost lucky in a sense that it was fear that drove me to do all those <laughs> yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of other players aren't fearful of that and they're the ones that I'm fearful for. Mm-hmm. change for you, my love Right till the end Our final topic of conversation, Keenan, and it's something that I have with all my special guests is a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? I would say generally good. I think it's been up and down since I've uh, stopped playing rugby. I knew it was going to be a challenge. And there were challenges that have arisen that I certainly wasn't aware of. Mm. I'd spent so much time as an athlete just wanting free time, wanting to, to be out of the structure that I was in. Mm. And because it is very restricting and there are lots of things that you can't do as a professional athlete. And then suddenly summer came and I had my summer off and I did some amazing things. Mm. I went out to India and Nepal mm. and went on a, a meditation treat, retreat where I stayed at um, a Buddhist monastery and, and didn't oh, speak wow. to anyone for five days and ate vegetarian food and probably lost about five kilos, which <laughs> yeah. as an athlete I could never have done. So I, I did have these amazing experiences that I'd, I'd yearned for for so long. But then on the other hand, my day-to-day life, I'd find myself sat here in my flat on a Tuesday with nothing to do mm. and all my friends and all my teammates are back at Wasps and mm. they're going through pre-season and I'm sat here like my mates in London are all working my girlfriend's at work what am I supposed to be doing mm. and there were things like that that I just wasn't fully prepared for I'd, I'd, I'd wanted freedom for so long and then when it came it was a shock shall mm. we say mm. uh, and if you could say um, what mental health conditions do you live with if any and how do they affect you in your day to day life um I would say my experience with depression is a little bit different to others. I, as I mentioned before, I'm probably on the more depressive end mm. of the scale. Mm. Um, and I, I do suffer with, with depression every now and again. I've had one period in my life where I was like, extremely depressed. Mm-hmm. And then for the rest of my life, it's probably, probably been all right. Mm-hmm. But I do tend to find myself um, feeling down maybe a lot harder than, than some other people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more if, intense it's yeah. more strong yeah the and down if, periods are harder and the up periods aren't maybe as high if yeah, that makes sense that's yeah. exactly it and if I'm not careful and if I allow myself to feel too deeply and get myself too involved in mm. those thoughts it can become something bigger mm. um, but luckily I, I feel as though I have the, the skills in place now to identify when that's happening and then to keep myself on a level pegging mm. what age do you think you were when you first perhaps realised that these feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind. Could you pinpoint a moment looking back or was it up until, you know, fairly recently that you thought that you're, you're now knowing that what you were going through at this, you know, X or Y particular point in time was actually mental health and not something physical? Oh, yeah, for me it was very recently. It was, I, 
I became very depressed when I was 27 mm. and it was probably after six months of, of feeling suicidal and seeing a psychiatrist and then tell, like diagnosing me with mm. depression and then explaining to me what it was about. It wasn't really until then that I actually understood what was happening in my own mind. Mm. And the, I'm 32 now, so the last sort of four years have been um, an accelerated learning yeah, of, sure. of, my own, of my own thoughts and feelings and mental health. Mm. When you had that first conversation about your mental health, whether it be you know a coach, fellow player friend, family member, do you feel like a part of you changed or you maybe had entered a new chapter in your life or did it seem fairly insignificant at the time? How did you look back on it? It was very significant. What, what happened with me is I, I was very depressed. I became acting recklessly. I failed a drugs test. Um, I got sent to see a psychiatrist as part of the failed drugs test and he diagnosed me with depression. And I was in denial at first. I didn't think I was depressed, even mm. though at that point I was having suicidal thoughts. Mm. I didn't think I was depressed. You I don't think, think mental health affects you, does it? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was exactly it. Um, but then off the back of that conversation, went away and read things, realised, yeah, okay, I'm depressed. And then that, that was kind of the pivotal moment where everything changed for me. Mm. Uh, and what triggers do you, do you think you have that affect your mental health? Um, have you figured out it could be a sound, it could be a sensation, it could be someone saying a particular thing to you? Have you figured any of them out yet? Or are you still kind of on that journey right now as to what things you need to avoid in order to stop it triggering your mental health? For me, it's mistakes. But have you pinpointed anything in your life that you felt, okay, this is a trigger, I need to avoid that? Yeah, mine, mine's internal. And it, when I'm feeling depressed and maybe I don't actually realise it, mm. external events will either send me in one direction or the other. So I'll either get very angry mm-hmm. or I'll become very reclusive and very sad. Mm. And it's almost easier when I become very reclusive and very sad because I'm not really affecting anyone else mm. and I can then take the time to kind of deal with my own thoughts. Mm. The harder one is when I become angry about things because then anger, you're generally directing it at another person, um, whether it's friends, family, unfortunately, ten, tends to be my girlfriend and she has to bear the brunt of it a lot of the time. Um, and then it's a case of acknowledging the thoughts, acknowledging the feelings and kind of working back to a a stable sense and and thinking, you know what, it's okay, I'm angry about this. Mm. That's not the end of the world. I'm not going to be angry about it tomorrow, so let's just let it pass. Mm. And what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or or help you feel better? You know, which ones have you found that that have worked and which ones haven't? There are are probably two, two distinct paths that I would say. Number one, and this is what I discovered being a professional athlete, that things like going to bed, making sure you get enough sleep. Massive. Sleep is the the biggest thing, tool that we can have for our physical and mental health. Um, Eating healthily and taking the right supplements, B vitamins, omega oils, things that keep your brain healthily. The brain is an organ and it needs to be looked after. And an example I like to use is that if, and like you're saying, you you feel anxious sometimes. If you're feeling particularly anxious one day at work or whatever, or, or, or framing it the other way, if you're, if you're feeling physically ill, so you feel like you have the flu and you're coming down with it, then you're probably going to leave work, you're going to go home, you're going to get to bed, get an early night, make yourself feel all right. If it's the other way around and you're feeling anxious, you might not think that way. You might not think, I'm going to take myself home, I'm going to look after myself, I'm going to go to bed. You might go to the pub and have three or four mm. pints, which actually will disrupt your sleep. Drinking alcohol isn't great for your mental health generally, so you actually exacerbate the problem. Mm. But I don't think people necessarily think about it that way so a big thing for me is looking after your physical health to look after your mental health and then in terms of cognitive things that I do with regards to my thinking I meditate every day 
Um, it's not for everybody, but I would urge everybody to try it at least. Mm. Um, and it's something that you won't necessarily feel the benefits of straight away, but it's mm. something that over time, the discipline of doing it will, will, or I can almost guarantee it will make you um, feel more comfortable within yourself. Mm. And why do you think it's important that, that we as men open up and, and try to normalise the conversation around mental health? I think the time of, of keeping quiet and, and, and trying to act tough, it's just, we're, we're past that now. Mm-hmm. Like the lives that we live are just so complicated and our brains aren't evolved to deal with it. We're not, we're not evolved to get 200 messages on our phones a day and be looking at pictures of our mates all over the world. That, that's a very new phenomenon. So we have to change the way that we interact as men and being open about your feelings, talking to people and also being receptive to people who speak to you as well. Because, and they're not easy conversations to have, but certainly something I've noticed since my article has come out that I found it a lot easier to, to converse with new people mm. um, who have read, like a lot of the people at Oxford, for example, have read my article and then it just starts a really open conversation. That's, that's it's a good really, starting point, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah. And it's just not something I've experienced before. Normally, everybody has the barriers up when you first meet someone, but showing a bit of vulnerability um, brings the barriers down a bit quickly and, and enables you to, to have better friendships and better relationships. And why do you think historically men have sort of struggled to express how they're feeling about their mental health, or feelings in general, I might add? Um, do you think society's taught us that it's not okay for us to show vulnerability? Have we done it to ourselves? Do you think that maybe we've had these stereotypical archetypes of what a man should be and that's created this pressure that we can't show emotion? Mm. I think it's societal and it it does stem from um, history that the woman stays at home and looks after the kid, the man goes out and works and you work and you're a hard worker and and you you need to be tough and you need to provide for the family but like I said before we don't live in that Mm. that environment anymore Mm. we 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 have like equal rights for women and men of course and and equal pay and changing and roles and all exactly. that sort of stuff yeah. and, and like in my example I'm doing I'm a student now my girlfriend goes out and works full time and she pays the bills and, <laughs> yeah. and, and I have she's to, the high flyer exactly yeah, yeah. And, and it's it's difficult I it is something that I catch myself feeling uncomfortable when she pays for dinner when we're out with my friends mm. and then I have to remind myself no that that's not how life is these mm. days um, so it's definitely something that has been kind of ingrained in us as men and I think it does take a bit of strength to to say, you know what, I'm not going to adhere to that, and I'm going to I'm going to like carve my own path, so to speak. And just quickly, when you talked about you know your article providing this sort of great starting point for for new relationships and, and new friendships, when you published it, what was your immediate reaction to it, uh, and did it feel like a, a like a weight had been lifted off your shoulders? I remember when I posted mine, and I was like sweating like full like popper beads of sweat before I clicked the share button on on Facebook and Twitter and obviously because once you once you put it out there you can't take it back mm. did you ever feel like that as well I yeah exactly yeah. the same I mine was slightly different because mine I'd done the article and then maybe two weeks later it was being published mm. and I'd been going back and forth with Rob Kitson and changing little bits of how it was worded mm. and, and he was great he mm. sent it to me and was like if I've not said anything right you let me change it and blah 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 and, and, and it, it was good in that respect. Um, but then the day that it came out, I had exactly the same thing. I was extremely, extremely anxious to the mm. point where I was thinking about just like ringing him up. People's, saying, re- people's no, reactions as well. Yeah, I don't yeah. want to do it. And then what made it worse is that I got a message from a few of my mates at Wasps, like, uh, is your, like when's your article coming out? Because I told a couple mm. that I was doing it. And I was like, later. 
And then I was getting missed phone calls from people at Wasps and stuff, and I was like, oh, Jesus. And somehow they'd got wind of an article coming out that mm. was framing Wasps in a really negative light, mm. which, of course, it wasn't, it wasn't at all. It wasn't at all, no. Not that, that Anyone who not, reads yeah. it would know that. But because yeah. they hadn't read it at the time, apparently the press manager there was in a bit of a flurry, worrying about what had come out. Crisis comms. So then <laughs> yeah. my, like, my anxiety went through the roof. Yeah. And, but then I, was, I just sort of like, it's coming out now, I can't do anything it's about what it. Is. it. Yeah. it came out, they obviously read it, and they responded to it in a, in a very good way. They realised that, that but the purpose of the article wasn't slagging them off at all. It was talking about my, my personal mental health, but... Uh, yeah, there were definitely, definitely moments where mm. I was questioning why I was doing it. Mm. And what was the best message that you received off the back of it? The one that really sticks in your mind? Maybe it wasn't the one saying, you've changed my life, but the one that perhaps was the most impactful to you. Um, I actually got a message the other day, and it, it, it was off the back of a, a podcast I did with the BBC, um, BBC4, and I talked about another occasion where I was... I was overwhelmed by an urge to, to commit suicide and I left the house with the intention of committing suicide mm. and I, I almost came around mm. and I, I ran down the road and I, I just sat in a park in West London because there were other people around me and I, I was protecting myself from myself and somebody sent me a message the other day saying thank you that's the best piece of advice I've ever had I've just gone and sat in a park for a few hours mm. because they were feeling suicidal and the effect that that mm. had of knowing that it's actually potentially potentially saved a life. Yeah, yeah. You get sort of imposter syndrome. Yeah. Because you get kind of yeah. like, oh, I'm just, I'm just doing this. I'm just writing my experiences, and you sort of put yourself down a bit, yeah. and you say like, I'm just doing this. You know, maybe this shouldn't have an impact. What mm. is, what is my role in compa- comparing myself to others? But did you, did you get the same sort of feelings as well? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I really did, and people say. Or if it helps one person, then it's worth doing, et cetera, et cetera. But just as, as you've said, it's, there are so many people suffering in silence mm. still mm. that us speaking out, it doesn't just help one people. It helps tens, dozens, hundreds, thousands of people. Mm. Uh, and that's a, massive, that's a massive thing. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this edition of the Just Checking In podcast. Kiernan, thank you so much for being my special guest on this edition's pod and for checking in with me. For those who want to find out more about the brilliant your work, your work you're doing, or want to follow your progress, where can they go? Uh, give me a follow on Twitter. I tweet about uh, mental health events that I'm speaking at and also new research that's coming out at Kieran and Mile, just as my name is spelled. Excellent. And we'll put a link uh, for your Twitter in the description of the pod. Thank you to all the venters who tuned in. And as always, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you're feeling really, really generous, help us with the algorithms and write us a review on iTunes. We hope to check in with you again very soon. Remember, it's always a day to vent.